Well, good morning. Ladies, that study has been going on for a few weeks now. Uh, on Monday nights at 6.30. Uh, and the entire study is just based on uh, Genesis and creation and the original design of human beings. And for the next three Mondays, starting tomorrow night, it's, it's, it's incredibly important that you're here. Um, because it started with an overview of just humanity and the value of itself. Then they went through three weeks of, of men's purpose and men's hurdles and men's redemption. Starting tomorrow night, they're going to look at the biblical design of womanhood. Um, and, and understanding what that is saves you from a lot of failures. It saves you from a lot of, of unmet expectations. It saves you from a lot, falling into a lot of temptation you don't have to fall into. And for the next three Mondays specifically, this study is going to look at uh, the design and purpose of women. Uh, the, the unique temptations, the hurdles that women face that men don't, and then their redemption in Christ. And so, um, man, you, you just got to be here, right? And guys, you got to do everything you can to get them here. Um, so tomorrow night at 630, uh, ladies, we want to see you here for that. If you have your Bibles this morning, grab those and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in front of you. We're going to be on page 196 of that. Um, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning. As you're turning there and getting ready, uh, I just want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, just for the opportunity to be here this morning. God, I thank you for such a full room. Uh, I thank you for the, every person who decided um, to come today. And Lord, I know that you will bless that decision. Um, so God, as we gather now, as we, as we open this, which is your word, God, these are your people, this is your hours, this is your time uh, and so we just surrender it to you. Um, I ask that you would just push aside uh, the distractions of life, push aside what's coming after this. You'd push aside whatever burdens uh, that we brought in today, Lord, and may we just hear directly uh, from Jesus this morning. God, and we ask all this in his name. Amen. Like I said, we're going to be in First Samuel 16 today. Uh, I spent some time this week uh, over at football practice at ISU camp. ISU football has their camp going on leading up to uh, the first game of the season here next month. And it's something I just enjoy doing. I've got some, uh, some good friends on the coaching staff. Uh, they're really good guys who are trying to influence their players in a positive way. So it's just, it's just neat to be out there. Uh, but make no mistake about it, they're trying to win. That's the whole idea, right? And so their practices are focused. They're intense. There's, there's high energy to them, which makes it really fun to watch. Uh, and one of the things that I enjoy watching that I assume most people wouldn't uh, is these individual drills where each unit of the team breaks off uh, with their position coach and they run through these really specific drills of, of kind of detailed minutia, right? Uh, and the result is this, that whenever you watch a football game this fall, and, you know, if you're a godly person, you will, right? Whenever you watch a football game this fall, though, though players rely a lot on, on natural instincts, uh, most of what you're seeing has been practiced, whether you realize it or not. Uh, even the tiniest thing, the way a lineman's feet would shift, whether a receiver catches the ball on the inside or outside shoulder, right? Uh, how many steps the defensive back will backpedal before turning around. All these things have been practiced. They've been run through again and again and again. And on top of that, over, over there at the stadium, all those players have been recruited, right? So I'm out there, and, and it's almost as if these humans were made in a lab for football, correct? They're just bigger and taller and stronger and faster than anyone else I'm around. And they have coaches who design their workouts. They have coaches who help on their nutrition. Uh, they have people who work on their bodies and they're injured. And it's just a, an entirely impressive system. But it got me thinking about this hypothesis this week. Follow me with you, Will, for this. They have ISU has a few more weeks of camp and practice, and their first game is September 3rd against Butler, and you should all go to that. But when the first game is played, right, it's going to be the culmination of months of work. 6 a.m. workouts, 
Film sessions, therapy sessions, practices, drills, all designed to get them ready to play the game of football. But what if this happened? What if on the morning of September 3rd, the NCAA announced they're changing all the rules and declared that the winner of the ISU-Butler game will be the team that does the best synchronized swimming routine? Right now, don't get me wrong, I'd pay a lot of money to watch offensive linemen try to do synchronized swimming, okay? That would be entertaining. But how confused would everyone be? Right, because they've worked, they've built, they've prepared for a football game, and what was required of them was something totally different. Now, one of my greatest fears of ministry, I'm going to be open with you, is that people will have a very similar experience with God to the one I just described. Only instead of it being comical or strange or weird, it will be the most tragic thing ever. There's a scene described by Jesus in Matthew 7 that makes me shudder every time I read it or think of it. Because in this scene that Jesus describes, at the end of time, when, when standing before Jesus, everyone will give an account of their life. Jesus tells us there are going to be people there who are fully confident that he's going to let them into heaven because they've prepared. And what these people are going to do is they're going to begin to list off everything they've done. All these amazing things, all these spiritual things, all these good things that surely Jesus is going to be good with, Right? And he's going to send them away to an eternity separate in hell because their entire life they were preparing for the wrong thing. And what happened is they began, they were rich in things that, that they thought God wanted, but they were poor and broke in what he really looks for in us. Now listen, everyone, right, everyone who misses out on Jesus, regardless of how they get there, breaks my heart. I mean, to miss out on the one who made everything possible for you is to miss out on why you were made to begin with. But people, but there's, you see, there's another layer of tragedy caked on top of it for me when it comes to people who for their entire lives believed they were getting it right. People who believed, people who were confident that, that all along they had what it takes only to be told by God in the end, depart from me, I never knew you. It's why I hope that some of you begin to feel like we're a broken record around here. Because every single time you set foot in this building, uh, we're, I'm excited, I'm grateful, I'm humbled that you're here. Your presence, believe it or not, is a, is a great encouragement to me and to us. But I would, listen, I would hate it so much if your act of bringing yourself or your family here is used as an, as an agent in your eternal destruction. It would sicken me to my core to, to think that our gatherings here would play a part in anyone fooling themselves into thinking that they were good while missing out on what God really looks for. So when you come, our guarantee to you is that we're going to point you to Jesus and Jesus alone. When you come, we're going to tell you that if you're trusting in anything, hear me, anything at all other than Jesus dying for you on the cross and raising from the dead, then whatever you're trusting in simply will not cut it no matter how good you think it is. Because the idea of salvation is often too limited in church circles. We believe that, that people need to be saved from sin and depravity. Listen, we, we have stories of people in this church who were the roughest of characters whose past are just littered with addiction and chaos, alcohol dependency, sexual sins, affairs, the occult, everything that you could think of, and Jesus walked right into their mess, and he saved their souls, and he plucked them out of that life and set their feet on solid ground, and their lives have been changed, and their attorneys are secure in him, and we praise his name for that. But that said, depravity is not the only thing that people need saved from. There are lots of people who need saved from religion. 
We need to save from this idea that somehow we can earn our way to heaven. We need to save from the idea that there's somewhere out there, there's this list, there's this minimum entrance requirement to heaven. We need to save from feeling secure in our church attendance, from believing that our good life and our voting record and our lack of criminal history or the fact that we're American has anything at all to do with our standing before God. We need to save from the idea that enveloping ourselves into Christian culture is the same as surrendering our hearts to Jesus. We need saved from these ideas because they are just as wicked and fall just as short of God's standard in his eyes. And we need to be constantly reminded of this because left to ourselves, our sin-stained hearts are always going to default to the wrong things. So I want us to look at a story in 1 Samuel 16 today that displays for us a great discrepancy between what we actually believe that God is looking for and what he's actually looking for. And so begin, before we jump right into 1 Samuel 16, I want to set up the story for you so you can get the context that has led up to this chapter. Because the first person you're going to meet in, in 1 Samuel 16 is Samuel. That God's going to be speaking to him. And some years before this, Samuel was chosen by God to be his prophet. Now remember, this is in the Old Testament, so they didn't have the full revelation of the Bible like we have today. So in this time period of history, God spoke to his people through prophets that he would choose. And so he'd raise up a prophet, and then he'd give the prophet a message to say, and these men were supposed to speak on his behalf. Well, while Samuel was serving as God's prophet, since God worked through him, he became recognized as the leader of the Israelites. And Samuel serves faithfully for all these years, and when he gets older, he decides, you know, I'm going to set up a succession plan, and I'm going to appoint my sons to take over for me. But his sons are really bad news. They don't follow in the ways of their father. In fact, they're, they're pretty wicked guys. And so the people of Israel get restless. They reject his sons as leaders. They don't want anything to do with it. And then on top of that, they ask Samuel to appoint a king over them because they're looking around and all the other nations have a king and we don't. And God tells Samuel, go ahead and allow that. Right, even though they meant that they're rejecting God as their king, go ahead and let them do it. And so God leads Samuel to a man named Saul and Samuel anoints Saul as the first king in the history of Israel. And Saul's story starts out really well. It does. But not surprisingly, it doesn't end well. Because here's the thing about human beings, we weren't designed to be kings. It actually doesn't do your soul well to be told yes all the time. Did you know that? It doesn't do you good to have people wait on you all the time. It doesn't do you good to be served all the time. We think it sounds nice, but it never ends well. And the longer Saul is king, the bigger his head gets. So he begins to do things that are not for him to do. And he disobeys direct orders from the Lord. And he starts building monuments to himself. It's a tough read. God's finally had enough of it, and so he just withdraws from Saul completely. He just pulls away from him. And he sends Samuel to tell Saul that God has rejected him as king over Israel. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16. We'll start in verse 1. 1 Samuel 16, 1 says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I've rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, if you look right above that, you'll see at the end of chapter 15, we're told that even though Samuel never, ever go see Saul again, he is despondent and he's mourning for him. And I want us to put ourselves really quickly in Samuel's shoes at this point in his life. Because for years, Samuel has served the Lord and led Israel to the best of his abilities. And after all of it, he had, he had it all set up for a succession plan to take place. And his sons were going to take over for him and carry on this important work. Only his sons were a complete disaster. And everybody could see it, and so they rejected his succession plan. And so they asked for a king, a request that showed very little faith in God, the same God that Samuel had spent his entire life speaking on behalf of. 
And then God has Samuel anoint Saul, and Samuel anoints him, but then he, then he builds this great relationship with him where he, he counsels him, and he advises him, and he tries to steer him in the right direction. And the end result of all of that is Saul ignoring Samuel, rejecting the Lord, and getting full of himself. And at this point, Samuel just wants to mourn. He's just done. Because everything that he's done, all that he's appointed, all his plans, all his wishes, even when he's followed the Lord's leading, everything has failed. And so he's old, and he's tired, and he's just sick and tired of failing. And so at the start of chapter 16, God comes to him and says, I get it, Samuel, I get it, right? You can, you can just take it easy now. I mean, things haven't gone your way, so I'm just going to permit you a season to wallow in self-pity and mail it in the rest of your days. You gave it your best go, you really did. Only that's not what God says at all, is it? God shows up to Samuel and he says, get up. How long are you going to sit there and mourn for Saul? I've already rejected him for, as king, and there's work for you to do. I'm not done with you, Samuels. There's, your work's not finished, so get up. As you see, one of the ways that we misunderstand God is that we think that he expects results from us. And so what we often mistakenly do is we equate results with the idea of, of God rewarding us for our righteousness or our faithfulness. If a church grows to 10,000 people and another church has 50, well, then God must be happier with what's happening in the bigger church. If one, if one family's children all grow up and get into the ministry somehow, why another family's children have a greater struggle making their faith in Jesus their own, well, then those parents just must have done a better job. Or if you're healthy and comfortable financially and finding success in your field, then God just, he just must be pleased with you. And I want you to hear this. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that any of that is true. In fact, not one time in the Bible does God measure us by our results. He consistently measures us by our faithfulness. Are we being obedient to him? Are we, are we staying faithful to his word? Are we following his leading and his ways and his directives? Are, are we trying to honor him in our homes and in our careers? Are we, are we just giving it our best go to honor him and be faithful? And are we leaving the results up to him because that's his job anyways? God looks the same. He's like, since the results haven't been what you want, what are you going to do, quit? I've still got work for you to get up. And please notice, God does not ever call out Samuel for the failing of his succession plan. He never calls out Samuel for, for the people's request for king. He never calls him out for Saul's failings. What he gets called out by God is when he stops being faithful. When he stops doing what God has called him to do because that's how God looks at it. Parents, are you just doing your best to model a faith in Christ and point your child to him? Church, are we, just, are we staying faithful to his word, recognizing Jesus as our head and authority and proclaiming him to those who do not know him? Are we just living in obedience to God? Let's pursue those things. Let's pursue obedience and faithfulness and let's leave the results to God because those belong to him. And in his divine and mysterious sovereignty, there are going to be things that you do for him that will bring tremendous results. And there will be things that you do for him that bring results you wouldn't have desired. But that's not on you. What's on you is your faithfulness. So stay faithful. Serve the Lord every day of your life. If you're still here, right, there's breath in your lungs and God still has something for you. And what he's looking for from you is for you to be faithful. So Sam is told by God to go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. And in verse 2, he's got a small concern. He's concerned for his life. Because right, remember, the last time that Samuel talked to Saul, he told him that God has rejected Saul as king of Israel. And I'm thinking, that didn't sit too well with Saul. And Saul knows Samuel's the kingmaker, right? 
And Samuel knows he's being watched. And so Saul has spies tracking him. And, if, and so if he goes on this unexplained journey, Saul's going to quickly figure out what's going on and that he's going to anoint a new king. And that's going to spell trouble for Samuel and the new king. And so God tells him to take a heifer. Because part of his duties as the Lord's prophet is to carry out sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so by taking this animal, it's just going to look like a business as usual trip. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, he speaks to the town elders there, uh, and, and then he consecrates Jesse and his sons and he invites them to come with him to the sacrifice. And it's there that Samuel is going to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. And we pick up the story in verse 6. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And I'll let you know, this is a unique a story for the life of Samuel because this seems to be the one time in the Bible that God has Samuel initiate something without letting Samuel know what he's doing. All the other times that God has used Samuel that are recorded for us in Scripture, God gives Samuel a full and complete message, right? He knows fully what he's going to say and what he's going to do and why he's supposed to do it. But for this occasion, all Samuel knows is that he's to go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons as king, but God hasn't told him which son. And so there's still a mystery here as this process starts. And Samuel tries to figure out in his head who it's going to be because he's not used to this mystery. And in walks Eliab, one of Jesse's sons. And this dude was impressive. I mean, one look at this cat. He's got king written all over him. You're going to find in verse 7 that he was impressive both in appearance and in stature. And man, that's what you want from a king, Right? This guy just owns the room by walking into. You want, you want someone who's intimidating, but yet someone who's also impressive, and yet someone who's also attractive. You know, somebody like me, right? Why, what are we laughing about, right? I don't understand the joke there, but I, that is a joke. For those of you who are new here, I'm actually not full of myself. I hope not, at least. Um, but listen, that's, that's somebody you want to follow, right? That's someone you want to rule over you. That's someone who just looks the part. He looks kingly. And so Samuel sees Eliab and says, ah, that's why I'm here, right there. That guy was designed in a lab to be a king, right? He's surely the one. But God knows what Samuel's thinking. And look what he has to tell Samuel in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God tells Samuel, Samuel, you're focusing on and being distracted by all the wrong things. When I choose a king for my people, Sam, I'm, I'm not looking at stature, I'm not looking at appearance, I'm not looking at height. In fact, to look at outer appearance at all is a mistake that men make. But what I look at, what I consider is, what I search through is the heart. And God alone has the ability to fully judge a heart. He alone can see past the facade and what we put out there and actually know all of our thoughts. And know all of our emotions and know all of our intentions, intentions behind our actions. And for whatever his reasons, when God looked at Eliab's heart, he, re, he rejected him as king. Maybe it's as simple as it just wasn't in God's plan for Eliab to be king. But maybe, maybe Eliab was just too much like Saul. We learned earlier in 1 Samuel that Saul, Saul was one of those that looked the part of a king. He was a tall, strong, attractive guy, and, but his heart couldn't handle being king. Because it ultimately worshipped himself before God. Maybe that's what God saw in Iliad. But for whatever his reasons, he tells Samuel, keep it moving. He's not the one. Keep it going. And we're told that Jesse brings seven of his sons to Samuel. And each one, all seven, as they pass by, the Lord tells Samuel, I've not chosen this one. I've not chosen this one. I've not chosen this one. Keep it moving. They all pass by. Now, now Samuel's confused. 
Right? Because the Lord hasn't chosen any of these sons. And what in the world is he doing here? What did he come here for? And so in verse 11, he has a question for Jesse. Look at verse 11. He asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. There was one more son and that was the youngest. And I want you to notice, it was the one who was a complete afterthought. He wasn't even invited to the ceremony. He wasn't brought originally. He was the one out tending the sheep. And we must realize, shepherds are mentioned a lot in the Bible. And so a mistake that we can often make in just seeing how often they're mentioned in the Bible is start to believe that this was somehow an honored profession back then. Shepherds were not honored people. This was the job given to the least of the sons, the least of the servants, the least of the slaves, the least of society, because it was dirty and it was nasty and it was seen as beneath anyone with honor. And it's the shepherd boy, the least of the sons, whom God tells Samuel, rise and anoint him. He's the one. Because God wasn't interested in what the outer appearance was. I were told hey, David wasn't a bad looking guy, right? But God didn't consider or give thought to what was on the outside. He was the most interested in the heart, and David's heart was the one he chose. And I want you to see before we apply this, all throughout this story, coded on all its pages, is Jesus. Because hundreds of years later, there's going to be a baby born in the line of David, a direct descendant of David, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And his birth is going to be announced to shepherds of all people. And while he's in Bethlehem, Magi will travel to Bethlehem to come and shower him with gifts and recognize his kingship. And from this moment in, in, in 1 Samuel 16, shortly after this moment, Saul is going to try to take David's life to prevent him from becoming king. The same as King Herod will go on a murderous rampage to try and prevent Jesus from ever becoming king. And when Jesus grows, Isaiah tells us that there's literally, there was nothing in Jesus' appearance to attract us to him. Nothing on the outside that would make us want to follow him. But his heart was the purest heart the world has ever seen. Because his heart was the only heart that never sinned, that had no measure of darkness in it, had no inclinations towards evil. And he spoke on behalf of his father. And he told us things like this in Matthew 15. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because I can see in there and I see what they really worship. He says later in Matthew 15, what goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from their heart. These defile them. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. You see, Jesus came. He came to a religious culture that was all about outer appearances. That was everything. Came to a time when religious leaders focused exclusively on, on these outer displays of righteousness. They wore these really nice flowing robes and nice clothes meant to attract attention to themselves. They literally walked around with boxes of scripture hung off their neck to make themselves look more spiritual. And yes, they prayed and they gave and they served, but they did it all out in public. All on, on the front page for everyone to see. They added more than 700 additional commands to the Levitical law, all focusing on some sort of external behavior, all designed to show, uh, to show on the outside just how awesome, just how pious, just how religious, just how pure, just how much better they were than other people. And Jesus wasn't impressed. In fact, he calls them whitewashed tombs that look, they look nice on the outside, but on the inside they're nothing but full of death. 
Because Jesus is carrying on the truth that God had been trying to reveal to his people all along. That man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. This is Psalm 51, when David, of all people, David writes that a broken and repentant heart, God cannot despise. He can't help but move towards that. And this is another way that we just completely misunderstand God because we believe that we need to somehow put on a show for him. Don't believe me? Just, just look at every single religion that man has made and man has formed. You watch, you can track this. The further and further you get from the word of God, the further and further you remove yourself from Jesus, the more and more focus there is on self-effort. It starts with people who claim the banner of Jesus, but then they start saying things like baptism and church attendance on different holidays is required for salvation. You move farther out from there, more and more works are added. It expands as religions take on different names, but they all have the same critical air. Where, where now, whether it's you, you pray a certain number of times a day facing a direction, whether you make pilgrimages, or you meditate, or you attempt to reach nirvana, or you lead yourself to get rid of all desire, on and on and on. And what happens is it's all external. It's all a show. All of it is designed to impress the divine and somehow show ourselves worthy. And God says to us, man, man looks at all that. Man looks at the outside, but I look at the heart. The followers of Jesus still fall prey to this idea. Because we live in a world constantly, where it's constantly told us that our strengths need to be on display. I remember, I remember distinctly a class in college that coached me for that cliche question you're going to get in every job interview. What are your weaknesses? Man, if you interview people, can you come up with a better question than that, please? Right? But they, they coached us on how, to, if we get that question, how we can talk about our weaknesses in a way that made them not weaknesses at all, but actually strengths. We were coached on how to build up our resume to make sure people know how qualified and prepared we are, how tooled up we are. And while living in that world, we begin to believe the, the lie that this is what God looks for from us. And even worse, once we start believing that lie, we begin to believe that somehow we could convince him that we're something that we're not. That somehow by, by display of outer observances or customs or rituals, I can fool God into thinking that I'm a really good person, forgetting all along that he alone can see every ounce of darkness and sin and depravity in my heart. And then this lie begins to play out in intera interaction with each other. Because in too many churches, sin is taboo. Too many churches, struggles are looked down upon. Now, just to clarify, so you can breathe, we're anti-sin here, okay? We're not pro-sin. Hopefully you picked up on that. But here is our assumption. This is our baseline assumption. We assume and believe and know that you're a sinner. And we know that because we are sinners. So I want to commit to you today. I'm not going to be shocked when you sin. And you shouldn't be shocked when I do, right? Because it's who we are. Yet somehow, church culture in America has, has lost sight of the heart of the gospel. I've heard more times than I can count Christian speakers talk about warning Christians against, about bringing discredit to Jesus in the gospel when they sin. And here's the reason that the, that the gospel is, it cleans us from sin, so whenever we sin, we're actually discrediting the power of the gospel. But this, is this actually true? Because if there, if there are people who claim to be in Christ but are not, then that can weaken the view of the church. If there are pastors and leaders who go astray from teaching the word, denominations who refuse to call a sin a sin, adding to the gospel or preaching a gospel that is not in the Bible, like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, all of this can do great damage to the true message of Jesus. But listen to me, the only way to discredit a gospel of grace is to be a perfect person. 
Because when the message of Scripture is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That salvation is only by grace through faith so that none of us can boast. That Jesus took on our sins and granted us his righteousness because our righteousness was never enough. Then that gospel presupposes and assumes that we will sin, we will mess up. It already accounts for the depravity of human beings because Jesus had to die for that. Did you get it? Jesus suffering on the cross is a giant message from God screaming to you, I know you're going to screw up. But I love you anyway. And so I'm taking your place. Man, we don't need to pretend in front of that God. So what do we do to avoid these pitfalls? What, what do we do to make sure we don't misunderstand both God and what he's actually looking for from us? Well, first, it's simple. The first thing is this. We've got to take our lead from God's word. The Bible is the revelation from God and is, is a revelation of God to us. And it tells us what he looks for from us. And as long as we follow the Bible, we won't be preparing for a football game when we're going to be asked to be doing synchronized swimming. As long as we follow it, we're going to uphold what God wants us to uphold. As long as we follow the Bible, we're going to know what the godly response is when we actually do fall into sin. Secondly, when it comes to our service to God, we put all of our focus and all of our efforts onto being faithful. And we leave all measurements of success and all the results to him. And Samuel was old, man. He was, he was later on in years, he was tired. He'd seen nothing but failure after failure after failure. And God said, I've still got work for you to do. Third, shred your spiritual resume. Tear that thing up. Your greatest problem is your heart. The greatest problem with your heart is that it's stained by sin. And hear me, there is no amount of re religious living, no amount of believing that a God exists, no amount of church attendance or good works that can do anything to solve your sin problem. But God sent Jesus to solve it. He sent Jesus, his only son, perfect and holy in all his ways, to die on a cross to pay the price for your sinful heart and all the sin it produces. And if you just lay down the idea that somehow you can make yourself right with God, if you just admit that you have absolutely no hope to fix this on your own, and you believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, and you ask God to use that death and resurrection to pay the price for your sins, then God forgives you of all your sins, and he sees you as perfect in Jesus. And there's nothing else that does that. And there's no one else who does that. And so if you're trusting in anything else to forgive your sins and save your soul, no matter how good or religious or righteous it looks and seems, your greatest need still hasn't been met. Give your life to Jesus and trust him alone to save you. And fourthly, to the follower of Christ, the Christian, just drop the facade. You sin. You know you sin. We know you sin. I sin. God knows we all sin. There's none of us in here who are perfect. But if we're not careful, we can, we can create a church environment that unwittingly encourages us to hide this undeniable fact about ourselves. And here's the danger in that. Hiding our sin does more to discredit the gospel than the sin itself. In fact, hiding our sin gives it more and more and more power over us. If you want no victory at all over your sin in your life, it's really easy. Just keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody. And that thing will ruin you. Will own you all the days of your life. So do we boast in our sin? Heavens no. Now we should never be proud of the darkness in our hearts. But what we need to do is to stop thinking about repentance as this one-time event. 
Right? Too often we see repentance as, as this thing that we do when we first give our lives to Jesus, that we turn from living for ourselves and turn to living for him. And that's true, but repentance should be a consistent daily aspect of the Christian's life. So whenever it is that we do sin, we aren't tempted to hide it, we aren't tempted to sweep it under the rug, we aren't tempted to act like it didn't happen, but instead we confess it freely to God. And we confess it to those in our homes, in our church, that we hurt with that sin. And we repent of it. And we bask anew in the glory of God's constant forgiveness and grace. That does no harm to the gospel. It actually affirms it. It preaches it again and again and again to us. And it leads us to deeper levels of righteousness and growth. Because when we actually expose our sin by confessing it to God and others and bring it into the light like that and trust that those we trust with it, we rob sin of the majority of its power over us. We take its power away. And lastly, when we practice confession and repentance, we pray and we ask God to go to work on our hearts. Man, ask Jesus to pursue your heart with all the resources of heaven. Lay, just lay out your life before him. Funnel your priorities. Funnel your decisions. Funnel your schedule through the word of God. And ask yourselves prayerfully, ask yourself the harder questions. Why do I do this? What are, what are my real intentions for going to church? What are, what are the real reasons that I do the things that people consider spiritual? Is it to earn something that Jesus already bought for you? Or is it to simply worship him with gratitude? Is it, is it to make much of Jesus or is it to make much of me? Is it, is it to make me feel better or is it to get more of God? Is it to make myself look good or is it to bring glory to him? And ask yourself, what, what are the real reasons that I fall into sin? What's, what's actually going on in my heart? What are, what are the patterns in my life when I give in to that temptation? Is, is there something deeper going on here than the behavior that I need Jesus to heal? Ask him to go there with you, man. Ask him to form in you a heart after God. Because inserting ourselves into church culture simply cannot replace a heart surrendered to Jesus. Earning our way into heaven will never work. Leading with our strengths causes us to miss out on so much of what Jesus has for us. But embracing our weaknesses, confessing our failures, letting go of the idea that we can earn anything with God leads us to truth and to grace and to joy and to life eternal. So let's just commit to being a church here at FBN that doesn't pursue the wrong things. Let's, let's just make sure we're not preparing for the wrong game. Let's commit to being people who, who just simply aren't full of ourselves. Let's commit to being the people who's, who place no trust or hopes in what we do or what we wear or who we are in our own power. But instead, let us commit to being a church whose hopes and dreams and faith and trust and eternities are all completely and wholly dependent on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And let's ask him to pursue and work on our hearts because that's where he wants to work. And I'll tell you now, this is the harder and quieter work. I'll just confess that you can come here 35 weeks in a row and I'll probably be impressed with you. I'm like, man, that guy or gal, she's got it together. He's got it together. You can change some habits, right? You can clean up your language. Maybe somebody notices or praises you for it. But to actually change your thoughts to change your gut reactions, to get control of your temper or how quickly you're annoyed, to change your heart means probably no one's going to notice. Nobody's going to pat you on the back. Nobody's going to give you an award. God will see. 
And he'll see because your heart is the only place he's been looking all along. And it's the only place he's been interested in working on. So let's play for an audience of one. Let's play for him. And in our efforts to please him, let's ask him to have his way in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, with the price that you paid on the cross, sending your perfect and holy son to die for us, with such a heavy price, why would we ever think that what you asked for in response is such a cheap thing as religion? Such an, such an easy and weak thing as just putting on a display. God, when you pay a price that big, what you want is our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that around this room we'll surrender those to you today. God, you alone can, can peer in there. I, I can't. There are things in my heart that I, even I can't see. But Lord, you see it all. And so I pray that around this room, Father, you would just, would just hear and feel your presence as, we, as you put your finger on just areas of our heart, areas of our character, areas of our attitude that just simply aren't pleasing to you. And God, we submit to you that we want you to have your way there. We want you to form us and change us and make us more and more and more like you. And God, I also pray for any in this room, any within the sound of my voice, that up until today bought into the lie of religion. That, sought, that somehow by their presence here, they were, they, were, they were building a debt that you owed them. That somehow by their, by their outer displays of works and righteousness, that somehow you, you were going to be impressed and pat them on the back. And that with enough of those, Lord, that you would grant them eternal life. God, remove that lie today. Help us to see that our only hope, our only chance of forgiveness of sins, our only hope, our only chance of eternal life with you is in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And so if there's any in this room who's trusted in anything else to this moment, I pray that now they would surrender their lives to Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And we ask that you do this for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.